The following podcast contains audio extracted from videos on the Mythology Explained YouTube channel. Please note that there are two narrators for this podcast, myself, Silas, and Zach. Please enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to Mythology Explained. In today's video, we're going to discuss 10 of the most powerful gods in Greek mythology. Gods so powerful that their powers often dwarfed those of the other deities in the Greek mythos. Just a quick comment before we get started, this list isn't ranked and is by no means comprehensive, so let us know in the comments who else you think deserved to be included. Also, this video will only feature male deities, we'll make a separate video for female deities later on. And lastly, the final 5 entries are the same as the ones in the top 5 version of this video, so if you've already watched the other one, the halfway point might be as far as you go. Let's get into it. Starting off our list is Hyperion. Called the One on High and He Who Walks Above, Hyperion was one of the twelve first-generation titans born to the primordial deities Uranus, the personification of the sky, and to Gaia, the personification of the earth. His consort was Thea, called Farshining, another of the twelve first-generation titans, and together they had three children, Selene, the moon, Helios, the sun, and Eos, the dawn. Of Hyperion's three children, Eos most followed in her father's footsteps in that she produced many of the other manifestations of the material world, including Boreas, the north wind, Notus, the south wind, Zephyr, the west wind, and all the stars in the sky, including Eosphorus, better known by his Latin name, Lucifer, the morning star. Hyperion was a solar deity, Thus, he was identified with his son Helios and later with Apollo. One thought is that Hyperion's original role was to oversee the cycle in which his children shined in the sky. Like the other titans that fought against the Olympians during the Titanomachy, Hyperion was cast into the depths of Tartarus, the cavernous abyss beneath the earth. The only exception to this was Atlas, who was saddled with a special punishment condemned to bear the vault of the heavens upon his shoulders for eternity. Coming in at number 2 is Hades. The lord of the dead and the ruler of the underworld, Hades and his five siblings, Hera, Hestia, Demeter, Poseidon, and Zeus, were born to Cronus and Rhea, two of the first generation titans. Like his brothers and sisters, Hades was swallowed by his father at birth. Cronus did this to forestall his usurpation at the hands of one of his children, the same way he himself usurped his own father. Zeus, the youngest, of course wasn't swallowed. He was raised in secret and made a triumphant return when the bloom of manhood was upon him. Hades and his siblings were rescued when Zeus caused Cronus to disgorge them. So began the Titanomachy, the cataclysmic ten-year war that raged between the gods and the titans. Gifted to Hades by the elder Cyclopes, the three born to Uranus and Gaia, was the Helm of Darkness, an armament that bestowed its wearer with amazing power, that of perfect invisibility. Working in concert, the Olympians, the Hecatonchires, and the Cyclopes overwhelmed the Titans, who were defeated and cast down into Tartarus. With the War One, the next task was to divide the governance of the world's three domains. To ensure that each was assigned fairly, the three brothers drew lots. To Zeus went the skies, to Poseidon the seas, and to Hades the underworld. The etymology of the name Hades is a topic of some contention, 
but one proposed definition is that it may mean invisible one. Regardless of the definition, though, his name was seldom used. Though Hades wasn't an evil god, people avoided invoking him, instead favoring oblique titles such as Thonic Zeus. However, not all of Hades' aspects were unsettling. As Pluto, meaning wealthy one, he was seen as the wellspring that produced the precious gems and metals of the earth. The most famous myth in which Hades features is the abduction of Persephone. Because of his grim and grave abode, goddesses were reluctant to marry him, so he was forced to resort to less scrupulous tactics in winning a wife, which in his case involved capturing Persephone, not just capturing Persephone's heart. He came upon her while she picked flowers in a meadow, and in his chariot, whisked her away down to his thonic kingdom. Demeter, Persephone's mother, was dejected, bereft of her daughter, so Hades was forced to return Persephone to the land of the living, but not before tricking her into eating pomegranate seeds in the underworld, which forced her to return to him for a portion of each year. At number 3 we have Deified Hercules. Hercules was the champion of both mortals and gods alike, and the feats he accomplished before his ascension to Olympus were far beyond what any other Greek hero could have lived through. In speed, strength, endurance, and resiliency, he rivaled the gods as a mortal man, so it would make sense that, following his deification and these attributes, he became an even more overwhelming force, earning him a place on this list. Of course, this is pure speculation, but I thought it an interesting addition. Though the culmination of his exploits and escapades reached the loftiest of heights, residing in a tier of their own, Hercules' life was also one of tragedy and misfortune. The son of Zeus and of Alchemini, Hercules was a demigod, and his prophetic strength was apparent from the moment of his birth, as is demonstrated by the myth that describes him strangling two snakes to death in his crib. Hercules married Megara, and together they had five sons, but unfortunately, they were not to live out their days in blissful matrimony. Hera, Hercules' perennial enemy, cursed him with a fit of madness. In this state, his mind not his own, Hercules murdered his sons and his wife. To atone for this atrocity, a great penance was demanded. So, as decreed by the Oracle of Delphi, Hercules began his mighty work, his legendary Twelve Labors, which included tasks like slaying the Nemean Lion, destroying the Lernian Hydra, fetching the golden apples of the Hesperides, and hauling Cerberus, the Hound of Hades, to the land of the living. Having paid his debt, Hercules wished to remarry, but this embroiled him in a strange situation that ended with another fit of madness in which he murdered Iphitos. To cleanse himself of this latest sin, Hercules became a slave for three years. Hercules' last wife, Deianera, was tricked into making what she thought was a love potion, but it was actually a deadly poison. She kept it for many years, but eventually decided to use it when she thought Hercules might be in love with another woman. She applied it to Hercules' tunic, but it burned him grievously and made it so that the tunic ripped off Hercules' skin when removed. Deianera hanged herself out of grief. Hercules climbed a mountain, built a pyre, and climbed into the flames. Instead of burning to death, though, a cloud lifted him off the pyre and bore him to Olympus where Hercules and Hera finally reconciled. Hercules then married the goddess Hebe, Hera's daughter. They had two children, Alexiaris and Anesitos. 
Coming in at number 4 is Apollo. Apollo boasted an eclectic sphere of influence that was connected to many facets of ancient Greek society. Healing, archery, prophecy, poetry, and music were all provinces over which he presided. Also, Apollo was later identified with the sun. In appearance, he was portrayed as smooth-faced, athletic, and youthful. The bow was the weapon he favored, and the lyre and kathara were the instruments he most loved. He numbered among the twelve Olympians and was the son of Zeus and the titan goddess Leto. His twin sister was Artemis, goddess of the wilds and of the hunt. As one of the most important gods in the Greek pantheon, it comes as no surprise that his titles were many. He was called Phoebus, Bright One, Heator, Hela, Musagates, Leader of the Muses, Daphnephoros, Laurel Bearer, Hecabolos, He Who Strikes From Afar, and Pythian, this last title alluding to Apollo's slaying of Python, a great serpent or dragon that dwelt by a spring in Delphi. The monster was a scourge on the land and a bane to those who lived nearby. Apollo established his own priestess as the oracle at Delphi. She sat atop a tripod situated above a fissure that emitted gas vapors. These were said to be what induced the ecstatic trances in which the will of Apollo was conveyed. She only spoke in verse and what was said was interpreted by attending priests. Much of Apollo's mythology is intertwined with music contests and with, unexpectedly, toiling for mortals. Both Pan, the god of shepherds and their flocks, and the satyr Marcius challenged Apollo to a music contest. Each of them lost, but the consequences were radically different for each. In Pan's case, it was the judge who was punished. Incidentally, it was King Midas, the king with the golden touch, who sat in judgment. For his poor taste, Apollo changed his ears to those of a donkey. In Marcius's case, he was hung from a tree and skinned alive. Concerning toiling for mortals, Apollo found himself in the service of two Greek kings. First, he and Poseidon built the walls of Troy, but the king reneged on his promise to pay them. So to exact vengeance, Apollo sent a pestilence and Poseidon sent a sea monster. Later, for the crime of killing the Cyclopes, Zeus sentenced Apollo into the service of Admetus, the king of Thessaly. Though Apollo had been sent as a slave, Admetus treated him with respect and a friendship blossomed between them. At number 5 we have Eros. The personification of sexual desire, Eros, along with Gaia, Uranus, Nyx, and Erebus, was one of the first generation primordial deities. He emerged from chaos and was the elemental force that drove procreation. Described in Hesiod's Theogony as the most beautiful of all the gods, Eros, though not overwhelmingly powerful in a more conventional sense, was said to have had the ability to, on a whim, overcome any god or mortal with love and lust, and he could be cruel and capricious. Extrapolating from that, it isn't too difficult to conceptualize a scenario in which a wrathful Eros turns the whole Greek pantheon against itself by making them all relentlessly pursue each other's wives and husbands. Eros was thought of as a cosmic force of nature, less and less as time went by. He became anthropomorphized. Greek poets characterized him as young, beautiful, and golden-haired, with flowers about him and a pair of golden wings, bow in hand, an arrow ready to be knocked. His human-like appearance won out, and he became the son of Ares and Aphrodite. With Pothus, Longing, the Charities, Graces, 
Pitho, Persuasion, and Hemeros, Desire, Eros became another of the gods that accompanies the goddess of love. Coming in at number 6 is Atlas. Atlas's case for making this list is explained through the punishment he was saddled with when the titans were finally defeated by the gods after 10 years of war. Unlike the other titans that fought in the war, Atlas wasn't banished to Tartarus, the great cavernous abyss that existed beneath the earth. No, he was singled out and perpetually subjected to his own personal hell, which was to forever be the pillar that held up the heavens, stabilizing creation itself by keeping earth and sky separate. This, of course, begs the question, why was Atlas given special treatment? Well, the reason for this was that Atlas was an implacable force for the titans, his leadership and battle prowess greatly bolstered the overall strength of his side. His presence, both as counsellor and as warrior, was a core reason that the war between the gods and the titans extended into the protracted ten-year conflict that it was. When the gods finally won, their greatest adversary was condemned to suffer the greatest punishment. Atlas came to be defined by his unending plight. In this way, his constant, crushing burden associated him with endurance and resilience. But he wasn't all brawn, he was known as a wise man, and the art of astronomy, the tracking of the myriad of stars embedded in the firmament he pressed upwards, was said to come from him. At number 7 we have Cronus. Cronus was the youngest of the twelve first generation titans. His mother, Gaia, the personification of the earth, was kept in constant agony by having her older children, the Cyclopes and Hecatonchores, trapped inside of her by her consort, Uranus, the personification of the sky, who was repulsed by his earlier children, thinking them abominations that needed to be hidden away, which he did by pressing them back inside Gaia. This unbearable predicament was the catalyst that forced Gaia to turn to her children for help, beseeching them to rise up against their father. Only Cronus had the potency of character, a combination of audacity and ambition, to answer his mother's call. He lay in wait, stone sickle in hand, then ambushed his father, castrating him, casting the severed genitals into the sea. And so, Cronus deposed his own father, superseding him to become the new king of the cosmos, ushering in the era of titan rule. Later, Cronus would swallow his children, one at a time as they were born, a preemptive effort to prevent his own usurpation at the hands of one of his children as he himself had done. But his efforts would be to no avail, and the drums of war would soon sound as the gods and titans laid waste to the surface of the earth as they fought for supremacy, a conflict that would end badly for the titans. The belligerents of their number heaved into Tartarus, sentenced to banishment forever. Coming in at number 8 is Poseidon. By the three Cyclopes, Poseidon was gifted a trident that bestowed him with the power to shake and sunder the earth, a power that would help control the seas. Once the titans were defeated, Poseidon, Hades, and Zeus drew lots to see how creation would be divided amongst them. To Poseidon went the seas, to Hades the underworld, and Zeus the heavens. As the lord of the seas, Poseidon controlled their waters, able to pacify them with placidity or create tempests that could rip sails off masts and splinter ships. As such, he was the patron god of any human pursuit that took people to his element. Navigation, fishing, maritime warfare, any who engaged in these activities were subject to the whim of Poseidon's will, which could be as capricious as the winds. He was also the lord of earthquakes. Fissures were sacred to him, monuments to his power, and anything equestrian was his province. Riding, racing, taming, training, and breeding, success in these were his to confer or withhold. At number 9 we have Uranus. 
Guy independently produced three children, three aspects of the world. There were Uranus, the sky, Uria, the mountains, and Pontus, the sea. Guy took Uranus as her consort, and many children came from their union. First, there were two trios of children, the one-eyed Cyclopes and the hundred-handed Hecatonchores. Uranus thought these first children an affront to some undisclosed, arbitrary, aesthetic standard, which must have been of superlative importance to him because it pushed him into a radical course of action, which was to keep his children trapped inside of Gaia, preventing them from being born. As we know from the Cronus entry, this is what led to his castration, a sort of gruesome and grotesque passing of the torch from father to son, with Cronus seizing the title of most powerful male deity and ruler of the cosmos. Uranus's severed sex fell into the sea, and the water churning about them began to foam, and from this foam emerged the goddess Aphrodite. At the same time, droplets of blood dripped from the disembodied genitals arcing through the air on their way towards a waterbound landing. They fell to the ground, wetting the earth, thereby impregnating it. From this blood-soaked union came the giants, a mortal race with godlike strength and endurance, and the Erinyes, spirits of vengeance, also known as the Furies. Following this, Uranus was, at times, the bearer of prophecy. One of these times was Gaia and Uranus revealing to their son Cronus that he was destined to be supplanted by one of his children, just as he had supplanted his own father. Wrapping up this list is Zeus. Zeus was the supreme god in Greek mythology. His was the highest seat in Olympus, the celestial abode of the gods. Wind, rain, lightning, thunder, these phenomena were his servants. Though the earth was too sacred for any god to claim as their own, leaving its domain to Gaia, mountains, being the geological feature that reached farthest up into the sky, were of special significance to Zeus. Zeus was undeniably powerful. He led the gods to victory in their war against the Titans. He led the gods to victory against the giant uprising. And finally, he defeated Typhon, the most powerful monster in Greek mythology. Now, there are different lenses through which you can look at these accomplishments, and there are different versions, too. But regardless of this ambiguity, Zeus was a paragon of power. Cronus's attempt to swallow each of his children, imprisoning them inside himself, was thwarted when Zeus was whisked away and raised in secret. This was made possible when Cronus unwittingly swallowed a stone wrapped as a baby, thinking it his youngest son. Later, when the bloom of manhood was upon Zeus, he freed his siblings, then freed the Cyclopes and the Hecatonchores from the cavernous depths of Tartarus. The Cyclopes joined the war effort by forging awesome weapons for the gods. Zeus was gifted the lightning bolt, the most powerful weapon in Greek mythology, one that he would use to devastating effect, smiting his enemies as if he were a thousand storm incarnate. And that's it for this video. If you enjoyed the content, please like the video and subscribe to the channel. As always, leave your video suggestions down below.